Hi everyone, I'm Les. And I'm Ashley. And you're listening to Anthropotamus, where we explore some of your favorite anthropology topics. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to our latest episode of Anthropotamus. We are here with Dr. Paul Shankman of the University of Colorado Boulder. And we're discussing, so this is a little different for us. Usually, me and Les, we talk about a book uh, for our book reviews. But today, we have the actual author, uh, Dr. Paul Shankman, who just came out with his latest book, Margaret Mead. So thank you, Dr. Shankman, for coming on today. Hi. Happy to be here. Um, so I just, you know, I want to point out something to our readers. A lot of the stuff we we discuss in our a lot of the publications that we review they're not easily accessible and the writing is geared toward more towards those who are in the field of anthropology um right i mean a lot of these publications you can't even get unless you're a university student or have a subscription that you're paying for but this book it's written really towards anybody who's interested in margaret mead and easily accessible on amazon so i highly encourage everyone um to pick up a copy to pick up a copy because Margaret Mead was really a fascinating woman. Um, but, you know, before we get started on the book, Dr. Shankman, can you tell us, I mean, you've really built a career on her work and studying her. Can you tell us how was it that you became um, so interested in her? Well, I did field work in Samoa. And of course, Margaret Mead's first book was Coming of Age in Samoa. So her shadow uh, was cast uh, among all of those who who worked in those islands. Um, But I first met Margaret Mead as an undergraduate in the mid-1960s when she came to University of California at Santa Barbara for a one-week visit. And she was visiting the Department of Anthropology and needed a chauffeur. So I volunteered my 1953 Studebaker Champion V8 with white wall tires to be her chariot. And so I got to know her over the week as an undergraduate asking ridiculous questions about anthropology and anthropologists. And then when I did my field work, for my dissertation in 1969, 1970, I met with her at the American Museum of Natural History to talk a little bit about Samoa and uh, what kinds of work uh, I was doing that she thought should be done. And then I would occasionally uh, meet her after that. Uh, My future wife worked at the American Museum of Natural History and was an editor for Margaret Mead, so I talked to her. But I really got interested in Margaret Mead after the controversy over her Samoan work broke in 1983 when Derek Freeman published a book uh, criticizing Margaret Mead's work on Samoa. And since 1983, I've become more and more deeply involved with her. Uh, and I wasn't really going to get into the Freeman thing until later on, but since you brought him up already, I mean, I found it very interesting that his perception on that culture was so different, but it, I mean, it's almost like he just completely ignored that, you know, the time difference and the Western influence and the fact that, I mean, 
women especially are going to interact with him differently since he's a man than they would have a young female. Well, those are all good points, Uh, but it goes deeper than that. I mean, Derek Freeman also was one of those who found himself in the shadow of Margaret Mead. And to Freeman, um, Margaret Mead represented a number of things that he personally had problems with, including women, including women scholars, uh, the subject of sex. So Freeman came to criticize Margaret Mead not only as an academic um, and a very different kind of academic than Margaret Mead, but as as an individual, as a person who had deep issues with uh, the kind of person that Margaret Mead was. So I actually, uh, I want to piggyback on that. How did you perceive her differently after actually doing all of this research and writing this book? Well, the thing that I took away from uh, writing this particular book, as well as my earlier book on the trashing of Margaret Mead, uh, which is about the controversy, um, was that she was such a complex person that people could almost read into her anything they wanted to. I mean, she was independent, she was unconventional, she was paradoxical, she was controversial. Uh, Conservatives disliked Margaret Mead because they felt that she was too liberal. Liberals were sometimes embarrassed by Margaret Mead because she was occasionally conservative. And again, it depended to some extent on the period uh, of her life in which she was writing. So in the 1920s, 1930s, she was writing about the importance of culture and cultural variability because race and biology were thought to determine human behavior. And she wanted to present a cultural perspective But Mm -hmm. later, after World War II in the late 1940s, 1950s, she said, yes, cultural variability is important, but you cannot completely ignore the fact that human beings are biological creatures and that there are biological processes that are universal that limit what humans can do in terms of cultural variability. I can give you an example. Um, Mead talked about this in her best-selling book, Male and Female, which was published in 1949. And she said, uh, I've, I've studied seven different cultures. Here are the lessons that we've learned about cultural variability. But if you look at women, for example, women menstruate. Women are part of the process of conception. They give birth. They lactate. Uh, These are are universals that are rooted in human biology. Now, what humans do with those biological processes is highly variable, but not limitless in terms of infinite variability. 
And I, I think that's very understandable considering how long she was in the field for and um, it, with the advances in science that are constantly going on. Your perspectives on things are going to change. Um, going to, um, I mean, you know, you portrayed a very different Margaret Mead in the beginning of the book compared to the end where she, she appears in some ways to become more conservative. And, but I mean, even so, I, I feel like a lot of us still see her as a feminist for her time, but she herself did not. Uh, how, I mean, what are your, why is it that you think that she did not refer to herself as a feminist? Uh, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, what I can tell you is that if you look at her red book columns that she wrote from the 1960s into the 1970s until her death in 1978, uh, you get a Margaret Mead writing for the public and she's conforming to public norms rather than pushing the envelope. So for example, uh, in the late 1920s in coming of age in Samoa, Mead seems to be very accepting of premarital sex, um, you know, a certain amount of freedom for adolescence. But in her Red Book columns, which were read by millions of young women, she comes out against premarital sex. She's very much for the institution of marriage. And she gets a lot of backlash from real feminists because in this, in this period in her life, uh, she is very mainstream. She's in tune with what uh, the majority of American women are thinking at the time. So again, Margaret Mead, uh, a very, very complex figure and to, you know, to address your question directly, I'm not really certain why she moved in this direction. I think uh, as a senior public figure, uh, she became a lot more cautious uh, than she was when she was in her 20s and, and uh, 30s. And sometimes, and reading this, I wonder if her views changed because she's, you know, she's dedicated so much of her life to this career. And I wonder if she felt guilt for not being around as much uh, for her daughter. Because I know myself, I don't work nearly as much as probably Margaret Mead did, but I still have that guilt of trying to balance, you know, being a mother and a wife and a student and, um, you know, building my career. So I wonder if that had anything to do with it. Okay, great question. So Margaret Mead is in her late 30s in the, the late 1930s, and she's had a number of miscarriages. Doctors to told her that because she had a tipped uterus, she wouldn't be able to carry a pregnancy to term. But in 1939, miraculously, she's able to give birth to her daughter, Mary Catherine Bateson or Kathy. But uh, just before she gives birth, World War II in Europe begins, and Margaret Mead, as uh, 
an important researcher, anthropologist, public figure, uh, wants to be part of the war effort. So she's constantly moving between New York and Washington, D.C., traveling to England to do work on the war there. And she's really not uh, there as much as she wants to be for her daughter, who's being raised in a more or less communal household by wonderful people. Um, I think Margaret Mead did have some regrets about not being there for her daughter, but she also felt that because there was this very supportive ex extended family that uh, Kathy got uh, a very good upbringing, a great childhood. And uh, before I keep continuing, last, what other questions do you have? Oh, no, if you want to continue, that's okay. Um, I was going to say, or I was going to ask, if you had one thing that you would say, if you if you could advertise this book to readers around, you know, all, all of our listeners, rather, if you could advertise your book to all of our listeners with one sentence, what would you say about it? Wow. If you're curious about Margaret Mead, this is a good way to expand your knowledge of her. I I will say that that is a uh, it's a very true answer. I, she she is a fascinating woman, and this is a chucked full of information about her. Yeah, she she is just so interesting. I mean, this book was fun to write. It was a pleasure to write. It was because Margaret Mead just had so many different facets to her life. I mean, in the book, we're not just talking about her professional life. We're also talking about her personal life because they were intimately intertwined. So, for example, when she gives birth to, to Kathy, she's no longer an anthropologist studying mothers and children. Now she's actually a mother with a child. And this gives her a different perspective on this subject that she's already devoted a good chunk of her life to. So what part of the book did you enjoy writing the most? Oh, I think I enjoyed it all. I mean, there's just so many different parts to her life. For example, you know, I had written considerably about uh, her work in Samoa, the earliest part of her career. But her work in Bali is often not well known, uh, and it wasn't well known to me either. In uh, the late 1930s, she spent over two years in Bali with her third husband, Gregory Bateson. And this was a different kind of field work because she had worked in a number of South Pacific cultures, which were small and less complex um, you know, often numbering hundreds or just thousands of people in a particular population. Well, in Bali, you have over a million uh, Balinese speakers. Uh, it's a Southeast Asian culture. It's highly stratified with castes. It's complex. It's rich with art and music, architecture, uh, incredible 
agricultural uh, features. And uh, this part of this part of her life was something that I really didn't know much about. So it was fascinating to me. Yeah, I actually hadn't heard about her work in Bali before I read this. So that was something that I found particularly interesting. Yeah. One of the things uh, that Margaret Mead was criticized for uh, in the 1920s and 30s was that she wasn't spending enough time in the field. I mean, she would spend eight months in American Samoa. She would spend three months on the Omaha Reservation in 1930. You know, she would spend six months here, seven months there, three months here. I mean, she did an enormous amount of field work in a number of different cultures in a very short period of time, but she was criticized for not spending an extensive period of time, uh, essentially accused of doing drive-by anthropology. But mm -hmm. in Bali, she's there for over two years. I mean, really immersing herself in the culture for a long period of time. The drive-by criticism just doesn't hold. So I wanted to make sure I read this right. Her and Benedict I read this right, right? Her and Benedict created a grant to get rid of fortune. <laughs> <laughs> they created a grant to send him overseas and get rid of him. Okay, so Rio Fortune <laughs> is Mead's second husband. Right. And she does field work with him on Manus off the coast of New Guinea on the Omaha Reservation in the summer of 1930. And then in three different New Guinea cultures in the early 1930s. And initially, uh, this is a really good relationship. Uh, they work well together in the field. But in the CPIC, uh, all of this kind of falls apart. And one of the reasons is that Mead is falling in love with another anthropologist working in the same area, Gregory Bateson. And this leads to a very tense and awkward situation. Uh, Bateson and Mead, who are falling in love with each other, worry that this love triangle is going to lead to violence. It ultimately leads to the dissolution of the fieldwork by all of them. They go back to Australia and then Meade returns to New York alone. And uh, it's not just the dissolution of a marriage, a personal relationship. It's also the dissolution of a professional relationship. So uh, Meade and Fortune, who had been on the same page intellectually, are now uh, adversaries. So they're personal adversaries, their intellectual adversaries, and Mead and Benedict decide we need to keep uh, Rio Fortune at arm's length, and they do devise a plan to fund research that will keep him at arm's length from Margaret Mead for some time, and indeed, uh, they don't see each other for the next 20 years. Wow. That's, uh, that's you know, uh, 
a really long arm's length, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's interesting because Mead writes that the Arapesh that they'd studied together had no warfare. And Fortune, uh, a few years later, without any reference to Mead whatsoever, publishes an article on Arapesh warfare in the American Anthropologist. And it's a very deft uh, criticism of Mead without ever, ever mentioning her by name. So uh, this, was, this was not a good relationship. She went on to marry Bateson. And ultimately, in their old age, they reconciled Fortune, Bateson, and Margaret Mead. Clearly, there was a lot of passion in that in that relationship for him to have been so um, invested even after their parting. I mean, you don't hate somebody to a point where it affects you for so long without caring about that person. So what I'm thinking here is that, um, you know, Margaret Mead, being who she is, must have been a really, you know, wonderful person to be around for him to be that invested. Well, um, Margaret Mead was in love with the idea of love. <laughs> we all know <laughs> A that romantic. one of those people. <laughs> was engaged in passionate relationships, and including her three husbands, but also including a number of other men and women. Okay. okay. Right. right. I, f I feel like we all have that person in our life who we know is always in love. The true romantic. Yeah. <laughs> this episode that occurred with the love triangle between Fortune, Bateson, and Mead uh, was the subject of a recent novel by Lily King. It was a best-selling novel called Euphoria. It's also featured in... Charles King's Gods of the Upper Air. I mean, this is a piece of anthropological lore that uh, people love to learn about because it is uh, so passionate and uh, it shows that anthropologists are human beings first and foremost, not just uh, scholars who try and, and be objective. I mean, you try to be objective, but um, like you mentioned before, even Margaret Mead uh, could say that there are limits to that. We are humans. We are biological creatures, right? Oh, yes. Uh, but Mead, Mead in the 1930s was also talking about this whole problem of subjectivity that a lot of cultural anthropologists became involved with much later. Um, she recognized that, yes, there is this human element in fieldwork. There is this personal equation in writing up your material. Um, it's not just black and white. Yeah, all of your experiences, your um, learning, your family, everything, all of your culture affects how you view other cultures. So. Anything, any research that you do in general is going to be 
tinted through that, um, we'll, we'll say, uh, rose-colored glass if you want. Right. But there's a, there's a danger here, and that is that the anthropologist may become more interesting than the people he or she or they study. Mm. Um, and that, uh, I think, is sometimes the case with Margaret Mead. I mean, again, she is just so complex. She's so interesting. There's so many different pieces to her life um, that people read about Samoa and then they read about Margaret Mead and say, geez, you know, who is more interesting? Do you feel like part of the reason she was criticized so much, though, was because she was a woman and still a fairly male-dominated field? Yes. Uh, I don't think there's any question about that. And the topics she chose, for example, adolescence in coming of age in Samoa, childhood in growing up in New Guinea. I mean, in book reviews, male anthropologists actually questioned whether these were real anthropological subjects or whether this was kind of women's anthropology or whether it was even anthropology at all. So you get people like Alfred Krober, you know, who was at the University of California, Berkeley, uh, a dean of American anthropology at that time, um, writing that, you know, growing up in New Guinea wasn't really a very good book, that it was substandard, that Malinowski's work in the Trobrians and, and his theoretical work was much, much better. And, you know, these people like Krober are gatekeepers of professional reputations. They tell you where you rank in the discipline. So a negative review by a major figure, a male figure, um, really uh, let Margaret Mead know that uh, her work was not really considered up to the standard of most male anthropologists. Indeed, Krober and other reviewers actually said, we're waiting for the work of Rio Fortune, her husband, on the same culture because we expect that to be much better, higher caliber, much more complete. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and sometimes I feel like because she was a woman and she attracted so much attention, if maybe a little bit, if that was a little bit of jealousy on their part also. Um, that could be, um, you know, but... Uh, if you look at her relationship with Edward Sapir, for example, Edward Sapir was a brilliant linguist. He was a student of Franz Boas, like Margaret Mead, and they had an affair before she went to American Samoa in the mid-1920s. And uh, Mead decides that she needs to end this affair. I mean, she's She's still married to Luther Cressman. Um, and she ends it, and it ends badly for Edward Sapir, who is an important figure in anthropology. And he, 
gives her both uh, negative reviews in public and also spreads the word that her work is really substandard. So uh, it's not just a matter of, you know, me being a woman. This is a personal relationship gone bad and Edward Sapir uh, is going to make Margaret Mead pay for it. It seems like the fact that she's mixing her personal life with her career is, um, I mean, obviously it's causing her issues, but do you think that maybe that also uh, increased her publicity and made her more of a topic? Uh, Margaret Mead's personal life was known uh, to a circle of people within anthropology, but it was not well known outside of anthropology. I mean, yes, she had three husbands. This was very unusual. Uh, she did get uh, divorces in Mexico because such divorces were more discreet and much easier to get than in America at that time. Um, But, you know, for example, her personal relationship, her intimate relationship with Ruth Benedict, which was really important for her, both personally and intellectually, that was unknown until well after her death. And it happened uh, right around the time of the Mead-Freeman controversy, when Derek Freeman was actually going to out Margaret Mead as a lesbian or bisexual. And her daughter, Mary Catherine Bateson, wrote a book uh, with the daughter's eye where she wanted to uh, beat Derek Freeman to the punch, so to speak. I mean, Derek Freeman was going to reveal this chapter in Margaret Mead's life in a salacious uh, rumor kind of way. And... Uh, Catherine Bateson actually said, look, yes, this is uh, a chapter in my mother's life. I didn't know about it. Many other people didn't know about it, but it was part of her life and it should be part of her biography. And I think that's, I mean, to me, I find it important that that's, that's within her biography because it just, it does show how um, progressive she was. Um, I mean, I kind of, I kind of, I, I feel like it fits in with her, her perspective on, on love, open love and um, how modern she was. Well, this is uh, a result of Margaret Mead moving from DePauw University in Indiana to Barnard College in New York City, which is affiliated with Columbia. And New York City opened all of these new vistas for very young Margaret Mead. And, you know, she was just in her late teens, early 20s. And there was this movement, a free love movement, which said, you know, love is paramount. If it coincides with marriage, that's great. But love is really important. Multiple partners are possible. Uh, 
homosexual relationships are a possibility. Uh, all of these things were really revolutionary in the 1920s, uh, and only a very tiny fraction of Americans embraced them. But Margaret Mead was one of them, and uh, the ideology of, of free love did influence her early work to some extent. Something I wanted to ask, I wanted to backtrack um, to one of my previous questions. Did Fortune ever find out that they created this grant to get rid of him? <laughs> and uh, Lisa Dobrin and Ira Bashko have written about this, this particular chapter in uh, Mead's life. And I don't think I remember or know the, the answer to that question, but uh, Fortune did move on. Uh, you know, he uh, was almost an itinerant anthropologist moving from culture to culture, position to position. Uh, some anthropologists and sociologists thought that he was, quote, mad as a hatter. Um, <laughs> this was the impression of sociologist George Homans, who knew Rio Fortune. Um, but uh, if you actually look at the body of Fortune's work, he was a really good anthropologist whose uh, work has really been neglected. I mean, he's really thought of more as the second husband of Margaret Mead than an important ethnographer in his own right. And I think that would be a mistake. Yeah, I was going to say, he seems to have a, a very similar um, career to, well, not career trajectory. He, he just seems to be at least as energetic as Margaret Mead. Oh, yes. I mean, he, you know, he came from a poor rural background and he's catapulted into, you know, elite anthropological society in London where he begins his graduate work. And uh, he's not the same kind of person as, you know, many of the professors and graduate students that he encounters, but he's a very capable field worker. And uh, if, you, if you look at his work, including his work with Margaret Mead, uh, it's really quite good. All right. I think, I think those are all my questions. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much, uh, yeah, I'm out of questions as well. Yeah. Um, I did want to say, though, I, you know, I didn't really know anything about Margaret, Margaret Mead before reading this. I think we had like an hour lecture in Intro to Cultural Anthropology, you know, when I was a freshman many, many years ago. Um, so, I mean, I do, for those who are interested in Margaret Mead or who are taking the Intro to Cultural Anthropology and have a paper to write, I mean, I think this is a great book to pick up. Um, everything you need to, it's, everything you need to know about her is in here and it's a short, easy read. It's even big font, so you make it feel like you're reading it even faster. <laughs> um, so I do, I do. You know, you want an introduction to Margaret Mead, 
Highly recommend it. Um, matter of fact, you can write a paper on her and base it mostly on this book and then just take some of the, the work cited from the reference page. Um. Yeah, well, it's very well cited. You could easily um, find supporting pieces just by looking up the other works. Yeah. So um, thank you again, uh, Dr. Paul Shankman, for coming on the show with us. We greatly appreciate it. We enjoyed the book. Um, for our listeners, you can get this on Amazon. You can get it on Kindle, paperback, hardcover. Um, it, yes, go ahead. I was going to say, it's not too expensive either. Um, I had to buy two copies of this <laughs> because um, somebody else was a uh, uh, saw me reading it at work another per, uh, another um person who was uh, studying anthropology and was very interested so i ordered another copy for that person no oh, great <laughs> <laughs> thank you all for listening distribution of anthropotamus is in collaboration with the american anthropological association please continue to follow us on instagram and twitter at anthropotamus for our latest episodes show notes and book discussion schedule